0: Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. Tis the season at Boston Neighborhood Network and BNN correspondent Aiden Stein got residents and visitors in the holiday spirit at Downtown Crossing.
1: We're here at Downtown Crossing at a holiday market where local craftspeople, residents, and performers are sharing the holiday spirit.
0: The downtown arts market here in downtown Boston. I've been down here for the last three years. Um, so here we have all artisans that can make everything that you see. Um, so down here you'll be able to get unique gifts from one-of-a-kind small businesses, which I feel like is important to support uh, because we are what makes the world go around. We are part of the community, what keeps the community going. Um, and I feel like these are, who wouldn't want something one-of-a-kind and more interesting, you know, that really speaks to you.
1: Visitors shared their reasons for making travel plans to Boston this winter. I'm a big Boston Celtics fan, so I'm here for the game tonight. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we, this is our second time here this year for a Celtics game. So, yeah, just checking out some of the Christmas festivities going on. So we're planning on going to one of the festivals later this evening. So checking out those things as well while we're here. So, We asked Bostonians what makes Christmas in the city so special last year
0: was my first christmas in boston and it was so wonderful honestly uh, christmas is like one of my favorite favorite festivals it's lighten up everywhere it's cold but yet so warm in boston lights everywhere uh, also the commonwealth uh, common uh, uh, garden uh, the christmas tree over
2: there it's so huge i love it here you know, I just saw the um, lighting of the tree, they really do a good job with that. My town, my city does a great job with that. Um, I don't know, everybody gets into it. Yeah, we're all pleasant and nice, I think. That's what I like about this season. Yeah.
1: With another hectic year coming to a close, we ask what people are thankful for and what they're looking forward to in the new year. I'm thankful for my family, I'm thankful for my friends, I'm thankful that I'm able to travel. Um, just and that we survived this year (laughs) and uh, looking forward to more travel next year and uh, just more adventures and trying new things.
0: I'm very thankful for life, for my family. Um, I had a really detrimental loss this year, so it's been challenging. But I'm also looking at the upside of it that comes loss, comes you know, a renewal. And you can always start fresh and remember the good times. And I'm bringing that into the new year. Try to have a more positive year, because
1: I know a lot of people have been struggling this year. I'm definitely looking forward to just celebrating more. Um, helping people have fun at their events and just enjoying life because we all know from being locked down that it's the people in our lives that make a difference. Spreading the holiday cheer from BNN, this is Aiden Stein for BNN News.
0: On Saturday, Boston K through 12 students had the chance to pick their own destiny at the BPS Showcase of Schools. On Saturday, parents and BPS students convened at the Bruce Bowling Building in Roxbury to explore the educational opportunities offered to incoming K through 12 students.
3: This is such an amazing experience for our parents to come in and have choice. I am an alumni of Boston Public Schools and I, growing up, I didn't have choice. We just went to our neighborhood schools and my school was around the corner and there was really no other choices. It was just where you lived growing up in Boston. Now there's tons of schools here today and it's so exciting that parents get to grab some information from every school and see what they like best for their children.
0: Students have many things to consider when choosing a school, such as size, location, school hours extracurriculars, special applications, and unique programs that could set them ahead of the game after graduation.
3: This really is about empowering our families to come, to be able to get the information they need to make really good decisions. I think at the younger grades, it's exciting. We get a lot of parents that, for the first time, are coming into BPS because their child is of school age or they've moved, and this is the chance for them to see all of the different offerings we have and schools we have, and most importantly, they get to talk to the people who are actually in that school, in that school community and know it really well. Other parents, other students, or just the school leader and the staff who really every single day show up for the kids.
0: The showcase gave young people a chance to speak directly to school leaders, ask questions, and find out what makes each institution unique.
2: So what the school showcase does for families is it allows students the opportunity to really make an informed choice, which is very important and critical in the decisions that they make. So our schools are here sharing all of the wonderful programs they have available, and it is extremely empowering for students and families to be able to understand what those programs are to make informed choices.
0: As Boston Public Schools do their best to stand out with special features, BPS students now have the ball in their court in a way they never have before considering the diversity of schools and programs to chart their academic paths. Having choices in
2: schools she can go into is everything, because from very early on, she's expressed very clearly, very specifically what she wants to do. So I want to make sure that the school we're going to choose today is going to reflect that. And having the choice of what schools she can go to is literally everything the
0: showcase really comes from this idea that we want to empower our students and families to make educated choices um, about their schools there's a wide range of educational opportunities and programs in boston so our family the ability of our families to become informed and to make educated decisions about the schools that they want for their children really serves to empower our schools um, and enables us to serve our community better. In Dorchester, the Boston People's Reparations Commission met for the first community meeting to discuss what reparations should look like. If reparations happen, then perhaps we can say something to stem the tide of gentrification, because reparations aren't going to matter if we're not here. On Blue Hill Ave, the passion was evident as the Boston People's Reparations Commission hosted the first of what will be monthly community meetings on reparations. All were welcomed last Friday to join the growing conversation about what's owed to Boston's black community. Reparations has an impact on people of color, black and brown uh, people primarily. Um, You know, there's an impact on a group of people, which are black and brown people, who have been marginalized for so very long, um, with reparations. It, what it should be creating is opportunity. Um, I believe opportunity is what separates people um, from their goals, from what they're entitled to, whether it's on a, a health level, on an academic level, um, on just a human level um, in general. So it's reparations is, is, is a necessity. American freedmen who are the descendants of the four million formerly emancipated slaves are basically the people who, in which have been the most um, suppressed through systematic racism and also structural racism for the past 400 years. Also putting us at the bottom of the caste system and the bottom of the barrel. Reparations would definitely even the playing field, especially by closing the, the wealth gap. That's the most important thing. Current day, um, in, especially in Boston, the wealth of black people are $8. It's predicted that in 2053 it'll be zero. That makes a big difference so reparations is something that's totally necessary and it's not a handout it's what was due to us as far as the promise from the failed federal government boston youth also have strong feelings about reparations as shown by this t-shirt designed by jasmine st hill a teenager attending the meeting
1: black shouldn't have been shipped over in the slave ships in the first place that's just my opinion but I don't think there's any justification on what has happened. And even if they were to pay back and give land as their sorry, I still don't feel like that's a good enough apology. I just think that it shouldn't have happened in the first place. But, you know, adding the, the land and the money to it would be nice but I just don't think it's a justification for what happened and they're just gonna try to give us land and money to just throw it underneath the rug and just make it all disappear and think that's just gonna shut everybody up it was 250 years of free labor free labor we never got paid for and
0: people still frown upon us like we are lazy we are the last group to ever be called lazy and we don't care if you feel upset that we're getting this reparations because we deserve it and if we're black if any Everyone Black are able to benefit from us because we did it, and that's not fair at all. In 2022, Mayor Wu appointed Boston's 10-person task force on reparations with the goal of providing recommendations to to the city for truth Reconciliation and Reparations by summer 2024. Community groups like Boston People's Reparations Commission are watching closely and committed to doing their own work. What's important is that we are in on the decision when reparations are decided to be made available. We don't want what's just given to us. We want what we need to make our community a strong community, not just today, but moving forward. As I always say, we're honoring the past. We're taking care of the present. But really, for us, it's about the future. What is our future city of Boston, black Boston, going to look like? On Monday, Boston police officers received a change in policy after a vote on a new police union contract. On Tuesday, Mayor Wu announced a new five year agreement reached with the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association, which will bring police reform and better pay for Boston's law enforcement. At the end of the day, this is a contract that is fair and equitable to the men and women in uniform that are answering those calls for service. At the same time, we help policing evolve. I know the famous word out there is reform, uh, but I like to look at it as police evolving. We are bringing policing into the future. We are having better educated officers, and they're being fairly compensated in what undoubtedly is one of the most expensive cities in America. So um, we're happy this morning to report that we have a deal that was overwhelmingly ratified last night by our membership. The vote took place Sunday and Monday to decide on a number of topics, such as cost of living wage increases, expanding educational incentive programs, as well as clearly defining a list of offenses that will go through a court of law, rather than a private resolution. These offenses include hate crimes, sexual assault, extortion, human trafficking, and more.
3: Our highest priority is and always will be our resident's safety, and we must hold all we entrust with that responsibility to the highest of standards. That's why, for the first time in Boston's history, this contract eliminates the pathway to overturn disciplinary action or termination through arbitration if an officer is indicted for, or if a sustained internal affairs finding is issued and upheld for, specific criminal acts. There should be no loophole for those who commit grave criminal acts to wear a badge. And this also just gives that predictability so the process doesn't drag on and on with
0: arbitration. Police Commissioner Michael Cox hopes that the new reforms in the union contract will increase the number of police recruits and keep their current officers satisfied in their employment.
2: Right now, policing has issues with attention, I mean, keeping people, attracting people and addressing certainly, you know, Compensation to make sure that we're able to do the job in a a city that's relatively expensive. And I think this contract went a long way of helping us, you know, keep officers, uh, attract officers, and more importantly, um, deal with some of the resource issues that we have in general across the board. Um, in, a, in a way that's productive for everybody here.
0: Andala Coffee House in Cambridge has become a go-to place for some people to celebrate holidays, weddings and birthdays. But since October 7th, some customers say it's become so much more. BNN correspondent Sydney Coe visited the cafe to see how its sentiment has changed. In a coffee house located in the heart of Cambridge known for its Mediterranean food,
3: now the owner says serves as a piece of home and a safe space for some Palestinians. Serving up a cup of coffee with a side of culture. That's what the owner, Sami Herbawi says, Andala Coffee House is doing, bringing in the taste of Jerusalem to Cambridge.
0: It was really built for the whole community. It's about culture, it's about educating the, the people who comes here about uh, where I come from and about Jerusalem and about the Palestinian culture.
3: Since 2006, Andela has opened its doors to the Arab community. Now, employees say the cafe has morphed into a cultural melting pot.
2: Every, you could go to a room and at every single table, there's a different language being spoken. People are coming around uh, from all over the world to Cambridge, mostly seeking knowledge, and it's a beautiful environment.
3: Herbawi says the cafe doesn't just try to bring people together through shared culture but also through another tool, food.
0: You know, I try to create dishes from what my mother used to make with lots of love and lots of kindness.
3: Customers say that love is something they can feel right when they walk through the door. Probably my fifth time at Indala, I really love Indala. It feels like more homey than other coffee shops in Cambridge, so I feel like it does have more of that community feel um, compared to other coffee shops. Since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, the Council of American-Islamic Relations reported that incidents of hate crimes has nearly tripled against Muslims across the country. And that's why people say spots like these are so important.
2: And there's a lot of anti-Arab sentiment right now, Islamophobia. Uh, so it's really important to uh, surround yourself with like, an authentic representation of, of Islam and Arabs.
3: Besides educating people on the richness of Palestinian culture, Herbawi says the coffee shop has also become a place of safety.
0: This particular place became a refuge to lots of people. People, they come here, they come and they feel at home. They feel they have somebody to talk to or somebody to listen to or somebody to discuss things with. And that's what this coffee shop is all about.
3: Herbawi hopes that Andala Coffee House will continue to serve as a resource for
0: folks around the area. Reporting for BNN, I'm Sydney Coe. Last Saturday, Found Boston hosted an open market highlighting small businesses, with over 40 vendors selling gently used goods. BNN's Grace Choi explored how shopping vintage helps the environment. Small businesses and vendors showed off their collections at a vintage market. Morgan Vericchio sells crocheted and handmade products from reusable fabrics.
1: I think it's important because obviously we're in a climate crisis, um, so you really should be more conscious about where you're spending your money, what you're spending it on, buying clothes that are going to last that really means something to you. Some consumers share Vericchio's values. A retail tracking
0: group says more than 30% of U.S. consumers are willing to pay more for fashion that's good for the environment. Emily Pay says newer doesn't always mean better.
1: I think, first of all, like the everything lasts longer because it's, the older stuff is usually more quality. It saves money and less waste. Brandon Malone
0: says his company uses denim and silver that would otherwise go to waste.
1: I get a lot of this stuff from rag houses, so when you like donate to one of those donation bins... Um, It doesn't really go to like some kid in a poor country. It goes to like a textile recycling. So this would have all been bound for a landfill.
0: Environmental research groups say that the fashion industry is responsible for 10% of annual global carbon emissions. For BNN, I'm Grace Choi. Affordable housing is a pressing issue in Boston, and municipal and private developers are rushing to address the massive shortage. Urban Edge is responsible for over 1,000 affordable multifamily rental units and several other developments under construction around Boston. Angel Padilla, a community engagement officer from Urban Edge, joined BNN correspondent Aiden Stein to discuss how Urban Edge is building connections within
2: the community. Urban Edge is a local nonprofit based in Roxbury. It's a CDC, which is considered a community development corporation, and what they focus on is affordable housing. Um, other uh, initiatives too, but the, the main gist of it is affordable housing and making sure that people have a place to stay. And can you talk a little bit about what you do as the community engagement officer for them? Yeah, yeah. So me personally, I so each community engagement officer has like obviously like a portfolio of like the residents and the units. But what I really love about urban edge too, is this, the, the, these special projects. So for me, I do have Jackson commons and residents or buildings, I would say, sorry. Um, But the special projects is really like, they, they really get my, my gears moving And the special projects that I'm focusing on are like youth oriented. So um, one of them is called the partnership for youth advancement. And that's basically just an initiative that we're trying to push because Urban Edge being a CDC, we're not really a youth-serving organization. So, you know, picking up the experts in the community or the community leaders and also community organizations that do focus on youth work, that's kind of like the essential uh, goal of um, just bringing that partnership together. And that excites me because, like, I, I always say that nonprofits tend to work in silos so creating that cross collaboration is like key and really important for like not just youth, not just health, but just community work in general. That's
1: really great. Um, yeah, you. I had wanted to ask you about the partnership for youth uh, advancement. Um, can you talk about more so like what uh, you're trying to provide for youths in the neighborhood and like
2: what other community uh, organizations you're trying to build and foster relationships with? Right. So I, like kind of like going off of what I was saying with this like cross collaboration stuff. I think it's like really important for organizations to, like I said again, uh, get out of the silo mindset. But um, I think coming together really is the most important thing that we could do for the youth of the community. I think showing the youth that we're united together in this fight, and showing them that that you know reflection of community and collaboration and partnership, um, I think that's going to be empowering to the youth when when they're developing their partnerships and you know, because we, we hopefully inspire the future to kind of reflect the work that's being done for the community, you know? mm
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, So can you talk a little bit about the, um, you,
1: every year you guys put on an annual toy drive and yep. you distribute over 700 toys. Um, can you talk about what the impact you see on like the families and, and uh, with a program like this on the community?
2: Yeah, I didn't mention it before, but. Another one of my side projects, like youth-oriented, but uh, family-oriented as well, is Strong Start. And kind of like tying that to the toy drive, I've seen seen over time where parents come in and they feel hopeless. Like, there's no no solution to what they're seeing in the future, which is like, I'm not going to be able to get a gift. I'm not going to be able to get food for Thanksgiving. I'm not going to be able to, due to life circumstances. But... The shift that I've seen is the fact that when parents come back, you know, year in year or year after year, you know, you see this this building effect, which is not like, OK, this person is always in need or this person comes back this next year and they're in need. It's like this person is advocating for their community now. They're bringing another another person along. Sometimes they don't even participate in the toy drive because they've solidified something for themselves. So they're really just passing the word along, bringing people along with them. So I think that that is a great shift that I think is important to see because you want to see the people you serve become what you are for them, for themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's
1: really great. That's really great. Thank sentiment. you, I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah. Let's <laughs> freestyle. Um, obviously one of the main things that Urban Edge uh, deals with is, is housing and affordable housing in Boston. Yeah. Can you talk about what, uh, role your organization fills as it becomes even more important to be in shelter as it gets you know these cold months
2: and the cold season? Yeah I think um as a a unit I think Urban Edge is always on the edge (laughs) in the sense where it's like we're always fighting for exactly what we're saying we're fighting for and I think like that consistency is important. I think um just looking at the world of Boston right now, the circumstances that we're facing when it comes to, like, you know, the crisis that we're, we're handling when it comes to the houseless, homelessness and affordable housing crisis and stuff like that. But I think it's really important for us to kind of be that example, you know, um, for other organizations or other CDCs. Um, but that's kind of what it made me think about. It made me think about, like, how we're not pioneering anything, but more so the history of Urban Edge and the origin of Urban Edge, which is based in... Community organizations or community members coming together to stop a specific system that was going to impact their community I think like that is something to hold on to and something to put forth and stuff like that, but in the coming years I see that story of Urban Edge becoming something that is like ideal in the mind of of, of individuals like that's the ideal where it's like wow like this organization came together by hands of community members and then you know, 50, we're coming up on our 50-year anniversary. Fifty years later, we're still doing this work and trying to create, with the whole community-building aspect, create leaders in the community. So um, I think it's really important for us to be seen as leaders, but I think it's also important for us to reflect on our positionality inside of our community. So you've talked a
1: lot about the, the leaders that are coming together to work at Urban Edge and some of the great people that are involved in your organization. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about the... Um, the sort of directives and your main goals as an organization, the things that you're trying to push uh, forward as a group.
2: Thank you so much, because um, it kind of gets me to what I was stumbling on earlier when it when I was talking about the, the strategic plan and the five pillars. So as a whole, um, Urban Edge is focusing on the five pillars of their strategic plan, which at the core, if you can kind of see a visual, is like racial equity. And on the other sides, you have affordable housing, you have community building, wealth building and vulnerable populations so I feel as though like as a whole you know racial equity is at the center of all the work that we're doing but you know we're collaborating with partners and other organizations to kind of like figure out how we fill in the 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 outer layer of the pillar formation (laughs) but um the main focus as a whole is that strategic plan sorry but individually, we're all just taking our own piece of it and kind of like, you know, running with it in a sense, mm-hmm. where like I said, the vulnerable, popu- the vulnerable populations would be my um, side of the thing, with also like another individual who's focusing on seniors, but my vulnerable population would be the youth aspect. So, you know, just individually re- handling the responsibility, but collectively understanding the, the goal, which is that strategic plan. And really, really important to say it's based in racial equity. Mm-hmm.
1: That's really great that sounds like really important work um (laughs) thank you is there anywhere where viewers can find out more about uh urban edge or where they can volunteer and 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 opportunities like that
2: yeah so um on our website uh we have a little social media going when it comes to i believe it's instagram and i I believe we have majority of the social medias but uh, urbanedge.org um and uh i would say also too i think we're pretty you know staple we're right here 1542 columbus ave um you know, the community is, is what we're seeking to engage with, and the community is always able to access this building, you know, like we're here. Um, we don't just purchase buildings. We also allow people into our spaces, you know.
0: Thanks for tuning in, Boston. That's our broadcast for tonight. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amafidon, and I'll see you next week.